Our New Testament reading this morning is going to be from John chapter 7. We're going to be reading uh, verses 10 through 13 in John chapter 7. <clears throat> but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? They were looking to kill him. That's one reason he had told his brothers he wasn't going to go up right away. Uh, but he went anyway privately. And there was much muttering about him among people. Some, while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke op openly of him. And then our scripture reading this morning is going to be 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. And Pastor Butch is going to be preaching from verses 8 through 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repent. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." This is the word of our Lord. You can be seated. Amen. Those heavy-duty verses right there, right? Ready to dive in. Ready to dive in this morning. Thank you, Mark, for reading that. Thank you, Amos, for your reading and setting up Malachi for us. I am so grateful and thankful for our Scripture readers. They just, they just do such an excellent job of not just reading, not just rote reading, but in a, in a sense, teaching, and, and what a blessing, what a blessing, okay? Just don't take over too much time, okay? Uh, but uh, praise the Lord. Thank you so much, and thank you, music team. Uh, thank you, parents, for the way you're raising your kids. God bless you. Keep on keeping on. Press on, persevere, fight the good fight. Uh, man, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Praise the Lord. All right, so after three weeks of Easter break, we've kind of been on Easter break. Uh, you know, three weeks ago, we had Jeremy, Palm Sunday. Thank you, Jeremy, for your uh, message on Palm Sunday. And then the last two Sundays, we've been looking at uh, the, the theology of Christ's resurrection, what uh, the resurrection of Jesus means for us theologically. And uh, that's been a good study. And now we're back in our regular study of Second Peter. And uh, Lord willing, we will finish up Second Peter this month, Lord willing. And I'm very, very excited about the uh, summer series I'm thinking about. Uh, but I'll just kind of, you know, dangle that in front of you right now. And I'll confirm that with you when we finish this book. Because uh, this book kind of springboards us into what I'm thinking about. So uh, uh, is that a juicy enough uh, little tidbit for you there for you to be thinking about that? Uh, last time we were in Second Peter, we learned about uh, 
Peter's reminders to believers and warnings to unbelievers concerning the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. Uh, To the beloved, to the believers, he said basically two things. Remember what God has said about Christ's second coming through the holy prophets, okay, the Old Testament prophets, and from Jesus himself through the apostles, through the apostolic writings. So basically, Peter's saying, just listen to the Word of God about this, okay? And then his second reminder to them was, know that scoffers will come. Scoffers will come. They will mock what you believe. They will mock your uh, Uh, They will scoff at your waiting for Jesus to return. And Peter's telling them, it's vital that you know, and he's telling us, it's vital that you know and understand and be ready for this. You're going to be ridiculed for what you believe. You're going to be mocked. The scoffers will come, and they will be brutal. So don't be surprised, and don't be intimidated. Stand your ground. To the ungodly, he issued two words of warning. Number one, don't forget God's judgment in the past. He's judged before, okay? In fact, the phrase, day of the Lord, that we're looking at in these last several verses of 2 Peter was an Old Testament phrase as well that was pretty much linked to any time of judgment of God, okay? But now Peter is talking about the final big daddy, okay? The final day of the Lord, the ultimate and final judgment, okay? But so... Peter is is warning the ungodly, the unbelievers. God created everything. He owns it all. He makes the rules for all of life. And when these rules are broken, God has the absolute right to bring down judgment. And he's done that in the past. He's done that with the flood, especially. So he's saying, don't forget that. The flood, as well as creation itself, but the flood proves that things don't always just continue in a uniform pattern. Catastrophic things from the hand of God have happened in the past, and they will come again. And that's his second warning, telling them don't discount God's plans for the future. His second warning to the scoffers involves the future. He judged the ungodly in the days of Noah with water. He will judge the ungodly in the future by fire. Count on it. Count on it. So, Charles Swindle gives us a fitting introductory comment for this morning's message and really to the remainder of the letter, okay, for the next two or three. I might finish next week. It might take me two more weeks. We'll see. Um, But here's a good kind of introduction to these last, what, nine or ten verses. Swindle writes, through his warnings, Reminders and promises, Peter urges diligence in light of the future hope of the coming of Christ and the glory that will come when the wicked are judged and the righteous are rewarded. Uh, Let's pray and ask the Lord to, to teach us this morning. Father, thank you for this this great letter from Peter, his, his last writings to, to your people. Give us ears to hear this morning and hearts to embrace what you want to say to us for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so as we continue in this chapter 
and wrap up this book uh, with our study of the coming day of the Lord. That's the big subject in these last few verses. We will be very wise to remember the basics from another summer series from the past uh, when we took up the subject of eschatology and spent a, a few months on that, on the doctrine of the end times. But do you remember? Let me remind you of some of our basics of that study. Number one, we don't get hung up with undisclosed or unclear details regarding the last days. Okay? Number two, we focus on the certainties like Jesus is coming. We can all agree on that. Okay? Jesus is coming. He will physically return to the planet. There will be a final judgment. We can be certain of that. Heaven is real, and so is hell. We can be certain of that. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, the resurrection of our bodies is certain. Remember, as we've just talked about, He is the first fruits. He is the prototype for our future glorified bodies. Our glorification with the risen Christ is as certain as our justification, which was purchased by his death. When we see him, we will be as he is. These are the things about the end times that we know for sure because God has clearly laid them out in his word. These are the rock-solid revealed, clearly revealed, undeniable, unambiguous truths that we focus on and emphasize. Jesus is coming back. He will judge the living and the dead. Unbelievers go to hell for all eternity, and believers go to heaven for eternity in a resurrected, glorified body. We do not get tangled up with speculation. We do not obsess over unrevealed and uncertain details. At the same time, we don't want to be ignorant of the big picture that God has made clear about this coming day. So let's keep that in mind as we press on. Um, I want to talk about three main points today that I believe Peter lays out as he begins his uh, teaching on the coming day of the Lord. Number one, we see it in verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So, first point, the Lord is timeless. He is timeless. This should not be overlooked nor forgotten. And this is not just a New Testament concept. Moses spoke this, this truth in Psalm 90, verse 4, probably where Peter got it, when he wrote, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. What is Peter saying by this statement? Well, he's saying that time doesn't affect God like it does us. We age 
over time. That's obvious, right? Uh, I was greatly reminded of this uh, just yesterday uh, when Sister uh, Stacy Hornsby in digging up pictures for, uh, to, I guess to go with uh, Will's graduation uh, celebration, uh, sent me some old pictures of uh, our church in the early days. And man, <laughs> I'm an old codger now compared to when looking at those, I'm reminded of that. See, time affects us. We age over time. Time doesn't have that effect on God. We tend to grow impatient over time. God doesn't. We change over time. Okay? And hopefully for Christians, that's a good thing. Okay? That's a good thing. In in addition to our physical aging, hopefully we're spiritually maturing. That's a good change, okay? All right? And I, I don't want to say that physical aging is, is a bad thing because it's getting us closer to Jesus. That's why it's so important that you be born again. It's so vitally important that you be saved. Because if you're not, then aging is a bad thing because you're getting closer to judgment. Today is the day of salvation. Please, please, please take care of that today. Okay. So, Time doesn't affect God like it does us. God's relation to time is much different than ours. The psalmist lays this out for us in these really good pondering words. Listen to this, Psalm 102, uh, verses 24 to 27. Oh, my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. That's what Peter's getting into, right? We read it in verse 10. The heavens will pass away. They will perish. But you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you, speaking to God, you are the same, and your years have no end. There you go. John MacArthur comments like this, The amount of earthly time that passes is of no consequence from God's timeless perspective. A moment is no different from an eon, and eons pass like moments to the eternal God. Now, that's some heavy-duty pondering right there. As finite, limited, changing, aging, dying people, we must not confine an infinite, unlimited, sovereign, unchanging, eternal God to a schedule. He is not confined to our personal day planner. And to attempt to do that is foolish. God does not and will never submit to our timetable. That's the point I believe Peter 
is making in this text. And, I, and here, listen, here's the good news for us. A clear understanding of that will do wonders for our growth in the spiritual fruit of patience. If we accept and know and understand and embrace and submit to the fact that God is sovereign over time, that will do wonders for our patience. We will grow in patience because we know that God has the timetable under control. I believe that's the point Peter's making for these Christians who are waiting for the return of Jesus. And in the context of this passage, Peter brings this up because of the scoffers who are skeptical, skeptical regarding the Lord's return because so much time has passed. Remember verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? The scoffers and the skeptics and the doubters and the unbelievers interpret the delay as God is not keeping his promise or God is slothfully delaying or he's forgotten. And Peter is encouraging the believers of his day and all readers into the future, including us, that what the scoffers are saying means nothing to God because he is the Lord of time. What Peter is telling his readers and us is that Jesus will return at the exact moment of God's sovereign choosing, a moment that has already been determined by a timeless God in eternity past. Will you cling to that today? Will you leave that with God today, if you haven't already? I love Spurgeon's warning to us regarding this. He says this, and you've got to kind of think with me on this one now. The worst effects may flow from an error here. Impatience, okay, and impatience is just believing that God doesn't have time under control, right? Isn't that what that means? Isn't that the bottom line? When we're impatient, we're basically communicating that for some, somehow, somehow, this is outside of God's control. And, and we're calling the shots on the timetable. And that's why we're impatient. And that's what Spurgeon is warning us about here. Impatience may ripen into unbelief. This may rot into petulant complaint. I mean, have you ever complained about the timing of something? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand, okay? I'll raise it for you, okay? <laughs> and that may breed inaction, sloth, disobedience, rebellion, and we do not know how many other evils. So what's Spurgeon warning this up? How the sin of impatience and not trusting God with the timetable will bloom into other sins and other negative attitudes. 
he goes on, the, the Prince of Preachers, he goes on to make these very concise and informative points, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, all time is equally present with God. Now, that's heavy-duty thought right there. All time is equally present with God. In other words, God lives in the eternal present. Past and future are not really relevant in God's eyes as it is to us. Spurgeon says, quote, he sees both the thousands of years that have gone and the thousands that are yet to come as present in one view before his eye, end quote. Wrap your brain around that one, okay? That's challenging. But listen, remember, if our thoughts of God are not challenging we're not thinking about God, right? We're thinking about a God of our making. If we can understand everything about God, that is not the God of the Bible. Keep that in mind as we continue to wrestle with these verses. So all time is equally present with God. He says, secondly, all time is equally powerless to affect God. We've already kind of said that in our earlier statements. As, as we've said, we change over time. God doesn't. He is unchanging. Time has absolutely no effect on the creator of time. Third, Spurgeon says, all time is insignificant with God. Time is a big factor for us. This is what one of the many things that sets God apart from us. Isn't that one of the attributes of God? He is transcendent. He is set apart from his creation. So time where it's significant for us and it's important to us really isn't with God. It's why we buy planners and calendars and watches and, and we download apps on our phone to help us stay organized and help us to stay on time and all this kind of stuff. But <laughs> that's foreign to God. Time is no factor for God. Whereas we are often ruled by time Right? We are, right? We are. Uh, people got to go to work tomorrow. You got to be there at a certain time, right? You got to be there. Okay. Where we are ruled by time, God is not. He rules over time. All time. And finally, Spurgeon said, all time is equally obedient to God. Whereas we are often the servants of time. I mean, how often are we ruled by the clock? God is the master of it. Time and the timing of all things are totally obedient to the will of God. And, and I want to leave this point with an intriguing thought that I want to throw out at you, not to be dogmatic, and I'm still chewing on it myself. When God created man, the universe, he, in a sense, or so to speak, started mankind's clock. He set time in motion. 
which of course, as we've already elaborated on, he is not affected by like we are. Now ponder this thought. This isn't original. This isn't original for me. I, I would have never thought of anything like this, I'm pretty sure. But Simon Kistemaker throws this out at us in his commentary. He says, when the day of the Lord dawns, chronological time disappears in eternity. Let me say that again. When the day of the Lord dawns, chronological time disappears in eternity. In other words, what I think he is saying there or intimating or hinting at is the possibility of no more past and future in the new heavens and new earth. Just an eternal present. Now, you think about that this week. You ponder that. Because we're not going to age, right? We're we're not going to die. How's this going to work? I don't know. I just know that we're going to have glorified bodies and we're going to be like Jesus. And I don't think Jesus is getting all crotchety and humped over and with his. No, no, it's an eternal present for ten thousands of ten thousands of ten thousands of years on into eternity future. That's mind-boggling. But we worship a mind-boggling God. If if your God isn't mind-boggling. Your God is not the God of the Bible. Keep that in mind as we ponder these things. So, may the Lord, my prayer is, may the Lord by His Spirit and through His sanctification of us in truth give us mature, biblical, God-honoring, and God-trusting perspective on time as we wait for the new heavens and new earth when time as we know it now, will be no more. Isn't that what the hymn writer said? When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. Man, that's heavy-duty pondering. That's the kind of stuff I want to think about. So may God give us insight. Let's move on. Number two, second point Peter makes here is from verse 9. And y'all knew we were coming to this verse, didn't you? You knew we were coming. One of the beauties of verse by verse, you can't dodge the tough ones. You can't dodge the tough ones, right? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Second point, the Lord is patient. This should not be undervalued nor misunderstood. The Lord is patient. This should not be undervalued nor misunderstood. So, 
What Peter is telling us here, he's telling us a bunch of things in this one little bitty verse. But the first thing he's telling us is that God's, as the scoffers might say, God's slowness is not the issue. God's slowness is not the issue. God's patience is the issue. Peter is saying that God's delay in judgment shows his mercy. We should be thankful for this as those thoughts of our unsaved loved ones glance across across our brain right now. We should be thankful for this. We should value this. We should be grateful for this. Why? Because we have friends and we have family members and we have loved ones and we have co-workers that we are still begging God to save. God's patience in sending Jesus continues to give us hope for these dear people. Dear unbeliever, if you are here today, please know this. God has been merciful to you in that he has not sent his son back yet. God is allowing you time to repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord. And we are diligently praying Romans 2, 4 for you that God's kindness will lead you to repentance. Again, quoting Simon Kistemacher, Jesus will return when God's patience has ended, when the time allotted has expired, and when the last believer has accepted Christ as Savior. As has been said, I think, by Yogi Berra, maybe, it ain't over till it's over. It ain't over till it's over. As long as Jesus remains in glory with the Father, and as long as our unsaved loved ones are still alive, there's still hope for their eternal soul. They are never out of the reach of God's grace. With God, all things are possible. So, dear believer, as you pray for your unsaved loved ones, you keep praying, and you never, ever give up. We do not lose heart. We do not give up. We keep diligently praying and begging God to save them. Again, with God, all things are possible. And while we are thankful, so, so thankful, as we think about our unsaved loved ones right now, while we are so thankful for God's patience, we also don't want to misunderstand what Peter is saying here. So we need to stop and diligently examine this verse because it's one of those uh, what I call battleground verses. Okay, battleground in a good way, not in a bad way, not in a, uh, a, a belligerent way, not, hopefully not in a, uh, a, a hateful way, or, but it, it's, it's over the history of God's church, it's been one of those verses that have constantly been debated. 2 Peter 3.9 might be the favorite verse used by non-reformed folks to rebut the doctrine of election. And when you read it quickly, 
it might seem to be saying what they think it's saying. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And here's where the emphasis lies with a lot of people. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God doesn't want anybody to perish, right? God doesn't, it's God's will. This is God's wish that not any should perish. But So if that's God's wish and God's will, then why do some perish? Why, why is hell pretty full? Why? Why did Jesus say broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life? That sounds like there's going to be more people in hell than, than in heaven. So what, what's going on here? In reality, what our friends say they think it's saying, I believe it's just the I believe it's saying just the opposite, and I tend to agree with R.C. Sproul, who said, quote, no passage in all Scripture more strongly defends unconditional election than this one. That's amazing, isn't it? That you can have that far difference within the body of Christ. We're not talking about lostness or savedness here, okay? Let's make sure we understand that. We're talking about what does the verse say? What does the verse say? That this is why we study the Bible. We want to know what God has said. I believe that's why most of you are at this church. You, you want to know what God has said. And not that the elders here are infallible and errant. We're not. But you want to be here because we're with you. We want to know what God has said. Does that make sense? We want to know what God has said. And we're going to diligently try to study and discern that with God's help and by His grace, by the precious illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. So God, please help us. Please help us. We confess this is a challenging verse. This is a difficult verse. We want to know what you're saying, okay? So why, why would Sproul say that? No passage in all Scripture more strongly defends unconditional election than this one. Why does he say that? So let's try to unpack that. Remember the context of the passage. Remember, the problem, one of the problems, a lot of people just pluck a verse out and they look at it all by itself. Okay? The three, as, as has have been said by people wiser than me, the three most important things about Bible study are, number one, context. Number two, context. Number three, context. Okay, context, context, context. What has been going on in this passage? What has Peter been saying? Okay, so context. Scoffers are scoffing at believers for believing in the Lord's return. They are saying that God is not faithful or he has forgotten them. And Peter responds by saying basically, no, it's not that God has forgotten. It's not that God doesn't keep his promises. 
It's that he is patient. And so what the question we want to ask following that is, patient toward whom? Patient toward whom? That's the $64 million question. Is it patience toward every individual in the whole world that's ever been created and born? That, that's the understanding of many of our Armenian friends. He's patient toward everyone in the whole world, every individual. But what does the text say? Who is he showing patience toward? Well, the text tells us he is patient toward you. Isn't that what it says? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's the you? Who's the you? Who is this letter written to? Well, it's even we got it even in a closer context in verse 8. But do, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. The you is the beloved. The you is believers. And if you go back to the in, introduction of the letter, Who's the letter written to? When you want to find out about who, you know, when we write letters, we say, dear somebody. And then everything we say in that letter is to that person, right? Well, who, who is this letter written to? We'll go back to 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To, to, here's who the letter's written to. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. By the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's written, the, the you is people of faith. To those who have obtained an identical faith. A faith as precious as ours. So, who is the you? Verse 8 tells us it's the beloved. The beginning of the letter tells us it's addressed to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. The letter is written to people of faith. And then in verse 10 of chapter 1, he tells them, what does he tell them? Remember? To be sure of their what? Yeah, you can say the word. It's not a dirty word. Election. The letter is written to elect people. That's who the you are. And the any... Continue on, verse 9, not wishing that any, any, the antecedent for any is the you. Not wishing for any of you, elect people, to perish, but for them all, all, all the elect, to come to repentance. And guess what? They will. They will. How beautifully this fits the context of what's going on here. Here's the main point of Peter's argument. Jesus will not come back 
until the final member of the elect has repented. Because God does not wish for any of his chosen ones to perish. And they won't. They won't. How do we know that? God has already said that. He's already promised that. Jesus has said that. Not a hair. You will die for your faith, he tells those that were of his day that were going to follow him and be true to him. You will die. You will physically die. But guess what? Not a hair of your head will what? Perish. (laughs) Oh, don't you love the Bible? Don't you love when it just comes together? Especially on these difficult doctrines and truths and Historically debated principles over the years. And I know, we're not, not going to end the debate today. I know that. I have no, <laughs> you know, visions of grandeur of ending the debate by this, this sermon today. I just want my church family to understand it. That's all I really care about. MacArthur says, quote, God's merciful patience beforehand gives the chosen the opportunity for reconciliation and salvation. Now, glance down at verse 15. What does verse 15 say? And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds like what Paul said in Romans 2.4. Paul and Peter right together. Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul said, God's kindness leads to repentance. Peter says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's just two ways of saying the same thing, using the words kindness and patience which go right together. Don't you love the Bible? Oh, Lord, I love your word. Incline your heart, our hearts, to your word. So, dear person that has not yet repented, God is showing you his kindness in that he has not yet given his son the order to return to fetch his bride. There is still time for you to confess Jesus is Lord. God is showing you mercy, abundant mercy. Today is the day of salvation. So, to sum up this point, the scoffers are totally wrong. (laughs) The scoffers are just, they're just out in left field. God has not delayed his promise in the way that they have in mind. On the contrary, God is not delaying, but patiently and lovingly showing his kindness by waiting for all of his chosen people to repent and confess Jesus as Lord. He wants none of them to perish, and not a single one of them will perish. Not a single one of God's people will go to hell. Let me put the final exclamation point on the interpretation of this crucial verse with the words of Jay Adams, who is the founder of um, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, of which Cheryl and I are members, and uh, I think we've got a couple people working on that to join us, so praise the Lord for that. But Jay Adams writes this, 
God is waiting until the last one of his elect shall come to repentance. The any and the all, in verse 9 then, refer to any of you and all of you believers. God will not bring about the destruction of the present defiled world until the very last Christian has been born and come to faith in Christ. Taken in context, the passage makes sense. Rather than God's will being frustrated, which would be the result of the other view, right? Man, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell, but a lot of people are going to hell. Okay? So Adam says, rather than God's will being frustrated, it asserts that it will be fulfilled to its fullest. Every one of his chosen makes it. Well, I mean, how often have we said that? You know, you may have things to worry about, you know, today as a believer. But there's one thing you don't have to worry about. You ain't got to worry about going to hell. You ain't going to hell. Praise the Lord. And that tends, when we latch onto that, that tends to dim our other worries, right? It should. Okay, number three. Well, our brains are mush, our brains are putty, so uh, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on point three. We'll kind of pick up here, but let me just make some introductory comments, and we'll pick up here at verse 10 next time. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The day of the Lord. It's a common concept in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. I believe we see it. It's mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament. And it's always linked with the judgment of God. Here, Peter is referring to the final day of judgment and the passing away of the current heavens and earth and the creation of the new heavens. Not going to try to unpack that today because I know your brains are worn out. Because mine is, okay? We will consider this phrase in more depth next Sunday, Lord willing. For today, I just want you to leave you with, and I want you to note the wills in this verse. In other words, the absolute certainties. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Meaning suddenly, unexpectedly, and unannounced. Thieves don't announce when they're robbing your house. Thieves don't send an RSVP telling you they're coming, okay? They come suddenly, and they come unexpected, and they come unannounced. That's the way the day of the Lord will come. Not might come, will come. The heavens will, will, they will pass away with the roar. We'll talk about that phrase next week. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, no matter what the false teachers and skeptics may say, Jesus is coming back, and all these things are going to happen, and we must be prepared for that day. Are you? Are you? That's the big question. Because that day is coming like a thief. You're not going to get notice. I had a neighbor at an old neighborhood one time. I got in the discussion like this. And uh, he was a non-believer. And he had rejected every, every plea. And he, he said, oh, when I see Jesus coming, then I'll bow the knee. Uh, no, you know, you're not, it ain't going to work. It's not going to happen that way. 
He's coming like a thief. Not that he is a thief. He's coming like a thief. He's coming unannounced, unexpected. You won't see it. It's twinkling of an eye. Twi- a twinkling of an eye. You won't get noticed. Please understand that. Okay. So, we'll unpack this more next, next week. I don't want to tackle these phrases in verse 10 at the end of the message, especially when our brains are already a little mushy from wrestling with verse 9. But I will add this before closing. Because of the turmoil of the church in the 16th century, remember that century, right? Reformation days. Because of all the turmoil going on with the errors and heresies of the Catholic church, Martin Luther was sure, he was sure Jesus would return in his lifetime. Jonathan Edwards thought the same thing in the middle of the 18th century. And here we are in the 21st century, and it ain't happened yet which I'm sure has led to more scoffers and more skeptics. But R.C. Sproul puts it like this. This isn't on your seat saver, so don't be looking for it. It might happen today or tomorrow, or it may take another 10,000 years. I know that God is going to keep his word, and I know that he has set a date. All we need to know is what we are supposed to do in the meantime, which is to avoid getting caught as by a thief in the night. And how do we do that? Well, it begins by repenting of your sin and confessing Jesus as Lord. Let's pray together. Father, may that happen right now. May unbelievers in this room repent of their sin, confess your Son as their Lord right now, please. We pray for that to happen. And now, God, we thank you for this time as your people of whom none of us will be lost. Nothing or no one can snatch us from your hands. And we praise you for that. And we ask you now to bless our time at the table of grace as we remember what Jesus has done for us to make us a part of your chosen bride. Oh, bless your name. Bless your name, Lord. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.